0: invite you to open your Bibles to First John uh, this morning. Uh, we'll begin our study or resume our study in the uh, book of Hebrews uh, next week, and be in that for uh, uh, the better part of, of the spring, taking a break again uh, for uh, missions focus uh, for Easter, Palm Sunday, uh, but we'll begin that. But before we jump back into that, I want to take an opportunity to um, invite us to consider uh, something that is often in uh, the minds of uh, God's people this time of year uh, to issue a challenge, and that would be that we'd be a people of, of God's Word. Uh, you'll notice in the bulletin that it says 1 John. Um, we'll be looking at that from a whole, uh, but don't panic, I'm not going to read all of that here this morning. We'll, we'll be pulling out uh, four passages uh, from that whole letter. As you're turning there, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer that he would speak to us. Father, as we come this morning, we come with great thanksgiving uh, that you, our God, who has created us, who upholds the whole world simply by speaking and through your providence. uh, You've seen that um, in in your wisdom that you desire fellowship with us. So you've established one day of each week that we might rest from our labors, gather together together be renewed in your grace while your grace is always present and you are always present. You've called us to revolve and align our lives around this rhythm. We worship you in praise and we worship you through our prayers, acknowledging that you are the one who is in control of all things. Now we worship you by giving our ears and our minds to you. We may hear what you have spoken through your servants. You have recorded through the generations the word of your spirit speaks, uh, that shapes, that renews. Lord, bless us this morning as your word not only informs, but it forms us that we might be more like Christ, bringing joy to you and to those who are around us and experiencing joy ourselves as we experience not only the salvation of our souls, but the object of our faith, being conformed to be like Christ. Bless us and make us a blessing, we pray, to the glory of your name in the incomparable name of our Redeemer, Christ. Amen. He ascended to the throne at the age of eight years old. His name was Josiah, the boy king of Judah. In the 18th year of his reign, he began a reconstruction project, a reconstruction of the temple. Uh, The temple, which was the centerpiece of all of uh, God's people, the the place of worship, the the place uh, of gathering, had fallen into ruin and disrepair through years and years of neglect. In my mind, we think of the temple as it's described at that point in time, probably was not unlike if you've seen photos of the malls that were so flourishing in the 1980s all across the country that have become ghost malls. And now you can find online pictures of them where you have trees and animals and other things that have just kind of taken over, and the, the structure is still there. You can still recognize certain things, uh, but it still lies in ruins, and it's quite obvious that it is not used, it is not inhabited. That's the image we get of the temple at the time of Josiah's reign. Eighteen years in, into his reign, he established this reconstruction process. He was going to restore it. It was, again, going to become the place where God's people would gather and to worship and to honor God. And in the beginning of this process, just like any reconstruction process, they had to clean up. So he sent the work crews in, and they had to get all the clutter out and the junk and the rubble. And we're told that in the corner of a room that had served as the sanctuary, some of the workers as they were removing the stones and the debris, they stumbled upon a scroll. Taking the scroll and looking at it, then taking it to the authorities, it was determined that this scroll was the word of God that used to be used to read in the worship service. The word of God that was read to God's people so that they would know what God had said. This scroll had been sitting under a pile of rubble and had not been seen for years. If you think about it, it's quite amazing because people continued. People continuing to call themselves the people of God. Went about their day-to-day lives, day after day, year after year, and the word of God had not been read and had not been heard in generations. Josiah took the scroll and gave it to the priests and the scribes and said, read it, which is always a good idea. The people who are supposed to teach and preach and write about these things should probably read the word of God before they talk about it. And after the priests and the scribes had read it, Josiah declared that they should read it to all of the people. And so the people were gathered together, and the word of the scroll was read to the people in Judah. And revival broke out as the word of God was read. People were renewed and restored, hearing the power of God's word. So to begin this morning, I want to ask a question of you. It's a question I need to ask myself as well. And it's this, where is God's word in your life? Is it possible that you, like the people in Judah, can go long periods of time practicing your religion, engage in God, and yet have not read and have not really listened to God as he speaks? Where is the word of God in your life? Is it possible that it is buried under the rubble of your busyness, perhaps buried under piles of bills, maybe off someplace in the corner with the other old and discarded remote controls from your electronics? Maybe it's someplace that it is visible and accessible, but it still hasn't been accessed quite as often as you feel that it ought to be. I know that in one sense, it's an easy question to ask a, in a church like this. I want to issue a a challenge, but really it's a, a renewal of a challenge. And the challenge is this. Let us be a people who are readers, students of the word of God. Now, when I say I issue the challenge, it's really reissued because from the very beginning, the word has been foundational to this church. Uh, Many of you have knowledge of the Word, and those who teach here are held accountable as to whether or not what we teach is consistent with what the Word says. But it's very easy for us to go long periods of time and not read the Word for our own benefit and for our own nourishment. Uh, We read it perhaps very quickly, perhaps very haphazardly, perhaps in preparation to teach, perhaps to give an answer to a question that somebody has, but to sit and to feed upon it and to allow it to do its work within us, the work that God has promised, it's very easy for that become neglected, first for a short time, and then later perhaps we realize it's been a far longer than we had ever imagined when we look back. What a challenge to be a people of the Word, that we study the Word and hear what the Word says as the plan of God's redemption is unfolding before us, and we see God as he reveals himself and as he relates to people through the Scriptures, rather than using the Scriptures as like the magic eight ball where, you know, you shake it in order to get an answer to your question. We come to the word sometimes so often and saying, what, what's the answer to my problem? And then finding a word that we speak to that. I'm not saying that there's no place for that. That is part of it. But my challenge is is not merely to use it as a practical source, but to feed upon it and to see what God has revealed about himself. Just like we don't want to use it merely as the magic eight ball to deal with our practical problems, nor should the word be read merely for the purpose of validating and, uh, and giving proof text, validating our, our doctrinal premises. There's far more going on in God's word. And there's promises that are given to those who read it. Now, I understand the difficulties that many people have in studying that, uh, studying the word. If I was to ask here, how many of you have begun an endeavor sometime beginning of the year or some other time that you're going to read through the whole Bible in a year and you made a good start of it, and then you just got to those long lists of names that you can't pronounce, and they seem to go on forever and ever. If I was to ask, I would imagine about 80% of the people would raise their hands and say, that's happened to me at least once in my life. And then I would say, so you have 80% that acknowledge it and 19% who are lying if they don't have their hand up. It happens to all of us because it just doesn't hold our attention necessarily when we get to those points. I recognize it's difficult because unless we are very familiar with the ancient uh, context, it's difficult for us to follow the flow. And I know that it's difficult because sometimes the things that are said are challenging for us. I I am both challenged and encouraged by Peter when he refers to the writings of the apostle Paul. I don't know if you've ever read this or not, but Peter says in one of his epistles, Paul has some good things to say, but some of the things that he writes are hard to understand. When I read that for the first time, I thought, oh, good, it's not just me. I mean, Peter, one of the apostles, one who walked and was taught literally by by Jesus uh, and who knew Paul personally, which sometimes is helpful for getting an idea of understanding where somebody's coming from. Even Peter's reading what Paul is saying and says, that that's that's good, but I don't know that I understand what it's saying. Sometimes reading the scripture can be very, very hard for any number of reasons, and, and I understand that. But despite the difficulty that becoming committed to regularly partaking of the word, I want to issue that challenge that we not only be a church, but that we would be people of God who are regularly feeding on God's word. This morning, I want to look at this letter that the Apostle John wrote, his first epistle that we have. Because in this letter, four times John says, I write these things so that... And then each of the times he gives a distinct reason. And with each of the reasons that he says that he's writing this letter, there is an associated promise for those who are reading it. Now, while John is writing in very specific, he's writing his letter and he's saying, the reason I'm writing this letter and here's my reasons and the promises that associate with that, his focus is specifically what he is writing. Uh, Nevertheless, what he writes is also a reflection of the promises and the benefits or anyone who reads all of the scripture. And so while we are taking the book of 1 John as a whole, I'm gonna pull out four specific verses as we look at it this morning, each of which will give us a reason uh, for which it is to our benefit to be those who are regularly reading and feeding on God's word. The first verse we find in chapter one in verse four, And we read this, John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. It's an interesting phrase because John is saying our, some translations say your, but it's an intended inclusivity. John is writing so that we would have joy and that they would have joy. The hour is including not just him, but those who are around him, those who are ministering, but also those to whom he is writing. It's a shared experience. And in God's providence, It's the shared experience of all who believe and all who are reading, not just the original recipients of the letter, but everyone who reads it afterwards, that we would share the same joy that John is writing about, that he desires and he desires for others to have as well. There's a contemporary writer who, though, says this as we consider uh, the joy that John wants us to have. In our age, as in every age, people are longing for happiness not realizing that what they are looking for is joy. So it's important that we understand as we are approaching this to recognize that joy and happiness, while often related, are not the same thing. They are not interchangeable words, nor interchangeable concepts. Happiness is fleeting and it is circumstantial. Joy is an attitude, an orientation that is foundational and is much more enduring. And I can illustrate it like this. I appear occasionally to talk about my uh, time on the golf course. I think recently I've probably talked more than I have played. Uh, but nevertheless, just uh, I imagine being out on the golf course, thinking back to when I was playing regularly, and I tee off and I hit the ball 275 yards, and it actually lands on the fairway. I am happy. Not long afterwards, or at some other point, I'm close to the, you know, to the to the green, and I chip on, and I'm somewhere within 20 feet of the hole. I am happy. Or I have just finished putting, and on a rare occasion, I putted for a par. I am happy. And then come with all that happiness, I move to the next hole, and I tee off again, and I hit it, and I get a hold of it, and I hit it even further than I hit the first time. Except this time it goes not 275, but 280 yards Straight out of bounds. I'm no longer happy. In fact, I'm pouting, and maybe have some other thoughts that are not becoming of your pastor, so I won't tell you what goes through my head. But throughout the time on the golf course, up and down, that's the way that my game goes. I have the moments of happiness, and I have the moments of frustration. Up and down, up and down, happiness comes, and happiness goes Because happiness is something that's fleeting. It is rooted in our circumstances. When things are good, we're happy. When things are not good, we are unhappy. From time to time when I'm out on the golf course, I stop back, usually it's in the midst of my unhappiness, and I ask this question, why am I playing this stupid game in the first place? And anyone who's played the game has asked themselves that, and most of us will ask regularly. And those moments that I ask that question and actually stop and think about why am I playing this game, I will look around and I will see the beauty of the creation that is around, the landscape of the golf course that I happen to be on, just the overall, the atmosphere, and realize this is nice, and this is good. And while I play golf, not because of the happiness it brings, but usually because of the humility that comes along with that, I realize this is enjoyable. There's a lot to enjoy, I have joy in the opportunity, in the privilege, in the environment, there's a, there's a lot of things. There's reason that is foundational that is not based on my performance or my circumstances at any given moment. Just sitting back and enjoying, and then I can proceed. Even though there's still the ups and downs, the frustrations, uh, uh, and, and and the and the happiness. A lot of people live their lives. We all live our lives in the same way that my golf game is because life throws to us things that are difficult, and so we have times that we have pleasure and successes and good things that happen. And then we have challenges that come into our lives, things that lead to unhappiness. As the writer is telling us, happiness and joy are not the same thing. And what John is writing about is he's writing and says, I'm writing so that your joy might be made complete. He's not simply saying happiness, but joy. And if joy is foundational, then happiness is often freer. Now, as I look at this, I also uh, recognize an important thing. John saying, I'm writing this so that your joy might be made complete, is pursuit of joy is not unspiritual. It is not selfish. Now, maybe you don't fall to that, but I, I know and have met many Christians who have taken seriously their commitment to God and to wanna to glorify God no matter what is going on in their lives. And, and yet somehow they get this idea that if it brings joy to me, if I am enjoying it, then there's no sacrifice. And if there's no sacrifice, then I must be doing it for selfish reason. And so they think that they can only glorify God through being miserable. Except John is saying, I'm writing so that your joy would be made complete. And so the pursuit of joy is not itself an unspiritual thing. In fact, John is encouraging it. John himself is pursuing it. John is wanting others to share in that joy. The issue is not whether or not we pursue our joy, but as C.S. Lewis says, is how we choose to feed it. Because we have this tendency to sell out so cheaply. While we are all longing for joy, we have the tendency to sell out for mere present happiness. We sell out for that which is cheap, that might last for just a moment, but ultimately might lead to frustration and disappointments. John's saying that the pursuit of joy, the desire for joy, is something that itself is, is good. But the question we need to ask then is, then how do we get this joy that John is talking about? It's not insignificant that he's saying that I want to make your joy complete. In other words, he's acknowledging that we might have joy from any number of, of aspects of our lives. But he's saying that unless a certain thing is happening, the joy is incomplete. He's wanting that our joy would be complete. How do we get that complete joy? Well, John says we get it by what he's writing about. John here, we need to see, is writing about a very specific way in which we get joy. The, 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 uh, the psalmists often say there's joy in the presence of God, and that's what John is saying in this letter. Everything he writes in verse 4 is pointing back to what he writes in the first three verses, particularly in verses 2 and 3. And what he talks about it in those verses is joy comes through fellowship. In other words, the connection with other people. But it's not even just the fellowship with other people. It's the connection, he says, but our fellowship is with God. So it's not just him as an apostle who has fellowship with God, but the joy comes through having fellowship with God. And I'm writing these things so that your joy would be complete. You would know that you have fellowship. You can have fellowship with God. And if you think about what John is doing here in a very subtle way, there's a practical aspect for us that would inspire us and motivate us to be those who read and study God's word. Because God's word is God speaking to us. Many people wish they could hear God speak, and he's designed it in such a way that his words, written by various authors, he is speaking. His spirit that inspired it continues to speak, and we are able to hear and to know God and to know what God is like and know what God desires and know what brings God to light. God is expressing himself in this way. And then we talk to God through our prayers and through praises. There's an actual dialogue that takes place in fellowship. You can't really have fellowship if there's no communication. So often we disconnect these things. We know, okay, there's time that I need to read the Bible and then there's time that I need to prayer. But what John is saying to us here is if God is speaking, we can hear God, we can know God, we can have fellowship with God. And what I would encourage you to do is to be a people who rather than just going for specific topics, from beginning to end, whatever it is, whatever book you start with, to just hear what God has to say, His story about here's His plan, here is the plan of redemption to restore people that have been alienated from Himself, how He reveals Himself and what He has done to to bring that about. Now, as you're reading about that plan of redemption, we might have questions or we might be amazed, and that's when we go to Him in interactive prayer. Lord, I stand amazed. Lord, I don't understand this. I don't. We talk to God through our time in reading. Now there's a dialogue that's taking place. That is fellowship, and that's what John is encouraging. And John is saying there is fellowship. Fellowship brings joy. Fellowship with God is what is missing in many of our lives that keeps us from having the joy that we so long for. But those who have chosen to commit themselves to reading and studying God's word, not for the purpose of teaching or having answers, but for the purpose of listening to God speak and to tell stories of the way that he's been at work and the place that you have in his story. They are a people who not only experience peace, but they, through the fellowship with God, they are often people who are characterized by joy. John says, secondly, we see not only is he writing so that our joy would be complete, but in chapter 2, verse 1, John writes this. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. When I read that, I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says. He said, I wouldn't even know what sin is except for the law tells me. Then he goes on and also says in that same letter that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. This is kind of bad news. This is the bad news of the gospel that God is revealing to us our condition. But as Paul says in chapter 7, I wouldn't even know that's my condition. Except that the law, God's word, has pointed that out to me. Now, in some ways, it seems like it is a bummer because there's enough negativity in the world who needs to be hearing more and more and more. And so why is God pointing this thing out? And, you know, why, why, why is that so negative? And yet it's the ultimate of true compassion. Think about the converse in, in this illustration. Imagine you have some condition that is potentially fatal. But the doctor who has diagnosed it has recognized you've had a tough week you don't need any more bad news so he doesn't bother to tell you you have a potentially terminal condition but but it is treatable but he's not even going to tell you about the about the condition that would just be awful the guy would be just you know, whatever what do we do to doctors we disparage them whatever uh whatever we do to doctor he'd be tarred and feathered in, in some but and because we recognize it's just it's just in, inappropriate and, and so the scriptures over and over reveal to us this condition that we have that's called sin Not because we are to be made to feel miserable, but because it's only as we recognize and embrace the reality of that condition are we open to and desire the remedy that God has prescribed that would set us free from that sin. And here John says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may not sin. It's an interesting wording here too. Because Scripture says that the sin is so pervasive within us, and all of us uh, have it, and we continue to wrestle with this. And we will not be fully delivered from it until either we go to be with Jesus through death, or Jesus comes and returns. And either way, when we are made what we uh, are designed to be. But right now, for every one of us who's sitting here, we continue to struggle with it. Some more, some less, uh, some perhaps, um, you know, more scandalous and others um, seeming to be more benign. But then we have this condition that is, that is killing us. And John is very aware of it. And he's saying, I'm writing this so that you won't sin. And that does help us to, uh, brings us to another point. See, before we received Christ, we could do nothing but sin. No matter what we did, we were doing for ourselves and for ourselves only, perhaps to merit God's uh, forgiveness, perhaps to, to feel good about ourselves. Whatever it is, even the best things we did we're still done out of sin. And while none of us is going to escape sin fully in this life, each moment, each opportunity for sin is something that those who are in Christ, we are able to say no. Before we were in Christ, no matter what we did, whichever way we turned, we were just it, it was our, our nature and our condition. Now it is something that afflicts us, but each opportunity, each thing, Itself is something we can say no to and not sin. And John's saying, I'm writing this so that you will not sin, so that you will know. Well, what is it that he's writing? Well, he is writing and referring to everything that took place in the passage before, particularly in in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where he talks about the glory of God and and the, the grace of God and he turns our attention to it so that we would recognize and experience what the scriptures testify to, which is when we are beholding God and his glory and his grace, there is no other desire that compares. So as we are focusing on God, when we are reminded of who God, when we are hearing God's voice through the words that he has revealed to us, we are far more empowered and far more inclined to say, I don't want anything that's going to separate me from the joy of the fellowship that I can have with God. And so he's writing these things so that we will not sin. So that we would do what scripture talks about, we would say no to sin, that we would put sin to death. The theological word is to mortify sin and live to God's grace, live to God's glory, live for Righteousness. saw a cartoon years ago that has stuck with me. It was a cartoon of a couple that began going to a small group in, in a church, and kind of you can assume what's taking place in, in the first panel, as the leader of the small group is explaining what they do in this study and what they believe and the way that we live our lives. And part of what is being said is that as followers of Christ, we're called to be holy as he is holy, so therefore we are to die to uh, die to our sin. And then the second pain, the wife in this couple says, well, I don't think I've ever died to sin, but I felt faint a couple of times. And the reason that has stuck with me is because all too often that is my own attitude, that is my own experience in terms of this, recognizing sin in, in, in my life. And, you know, it's, that's not good, but it's not the same thing as, as putting it to death. John is writing because there is a, there's kind of an old cliche, but it is a, a true cliche, which is, is this. It is true that the word will keep you from sin, even though it is also true that sin will keep you from the word. And we need to understand that both aspects of that are true. And John is saying, I'm writing so that you won't sin. Think about it in this way. Think of somebody who is invited to a, a really nice banquet, It's not a chicken dinner banquet, but a nice, you know, I don't know, whatever you want, steak and and, and lobster. And somebody's home, and they've invited you to come over, and so you're on your way over there, but you decide, you know what, I'm a little hungry right now, so you're going to stop, pop by Burger King and get something, one of their burgers. And you get to this feast, and you're not hungry anymore for that, which is great and perhaps even healthy for you. Many of us do that when we say and we really do desire all that God has for us. We nibble at things that would bring us temporary happiness, and it takes away our appetite for that which is great. And when we are nibbling at sin or allow sin to be a nibbling at us, it keeps us from the word because then we feel guilty about it or because it just we're just not hungry for it. On the other hand, if you take that story and you change that around a little bit, and somebody has just gone to you know, whatever of a banquet or buffet that is as healthy and delicious and everything that you want, and you've gorged yourself on that which is good and that which is beneficial, now you can pass by, you know, who's going to go to that and then say, okay, now I need to stop at 7-Eleven and pick up a few candy bars. You're already stuffed with that which is good. Sin will keep us from the word, but the word will keep us from sin. If we are feeding on this word, we are able to say no, and we are much more likely to do so. And John says, I'm writing so that you won't sin. But then I love what he does immediately after that, because at the end of that passage, in verse 1, he says this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, he's saying you can die to sin and you can say no to sin. And I'm writing and so that you will turn your attention to God and you'll feed on the word and feast on the word so that your appetite for sin will be diminished. But the fact is every one of us is going to struggle. And if, I like his word, if, it's when. He reminds us of the glory and the grace of God that is ours in Christ to begin with. Christ who gave himself for us and suffered the punishment that our sins deserve, that we might be set free. He reminds us of that, which is the very message that empowers us to say no to sin in the first place. And so if you have failed, even if you failed miserably in recent days, it's not hopeless, turn, repent, believe, and start all over and say no in the the nearest opportunity for sin. And John's saying, I'm writing to you so that you'll think about God and you think about his grace. And you think about not only the grace that forgives, but the grace that enables you to say no to sin so when we feed on the word, we are strengthened to live our lives in the way that we were designed to. Third, at the end of chapter 2, toward the end of chapter 2 in verse 26, we read, John says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Essentially, it is a, a warning that there are people that are out there that are trying to deceive us about the purpose of life and the way that we are to live and the way that we can relate to God. Culture watchers and people who study such things tell us that, on average, a one new cult starts in the United States every three days. Most of them we never hear, they're small, they don't get off the ground, but every three days there's somebody who has a new slant and something that is going to be a distortion of God's truth, often using God's truth as a launching pad, but bringing them to themselves, actually moving you away from Jesus Christ. When I was in college, there was kind of a, I don't know if it was the the weird spring, but there were cults everywhere. Some of them you could tell, they dressed up in whatever the costumes, the same people that you would see panhandling at the airport. They decided they weren't going to wait at the airport, they came to campus to try to recruit. And there were others that seemed to be more normal, at least in their day-to-day appearances. Appearances. And a friend of mine, a young lady who uh, had, was a relatively new Christian as I was, she began going to a Bible study of one of these seemingly more normal groups. And I attended with her and another friend a couple of times, and just something seemed right. He and I were both relatively new Christians, not, you know, not seasoned, but something just seemed odd. So we began to encourage her to withdraw from this group and telling her of the reasons that we were concerned. She said, but they're so kind. And they are so sincere. So she didn't withdraw from the group. The end of the spring semester, she did withdraw from school. Not to return. And I have no idea what happened to her after that. She got so absorbed in this group that is a, a known cult. Because they seem so kind and they seem so sincere but it's kindness and sincerity that sometimes that throws us i remember reading years ago about a doctor at sloan kettering hospital in new york city who was dismissed for operating on the wrong part of the woman's brain He had taken the wrong x-ray into the operating room. And with all sincerity, with all intent of kindness, with all of his skill, he began and performed surgery, leading to this woman to be comatose. Sincerity is not a replacement for truth. And there are people who will lead you astray, perhaps unknowingly. There are others out there that will lead you astray knowingly. And I'd like to say that all of this is restricted to that which would be cultic. But the fact of the matter is you can go to any bookstore and look under the religion section. And those who would claim themselves to be Christian, turn on the TV when you go home. Well, actually, don't turn on the TV when you go home. But you can find these people that are out there that are preaching and preaching a message that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are not feeding the flock of Jesus Christ, they are fleecing it so that they can get a few bucks and a couple of airplanes for their, own, for their own glory. But they will treat God's people as if they have no value and no merit of themselves, and they will deceive you unless you are aware, and it's nothing new. And so John's saying, look, I'm writing about these people who will deceive you, and, and, and they can come in any, any number of different ways. Uh, The question is then how do we have this discernment? How do we have the wisdom to know what is right? And what John is doing here is kind of like an illustration that was very common years ago. I don't know what they do in banks now with all the technology uh, and how they train the tellers to discern the counterfeit bills that are coming their way. But as I understand in in the old days, long ago, uh, what they would do is rather than trying to bring examples of the counterfeit bills that have been passed in the past so that people would study those, they would give the, the new tellers and those who would be handling the money, they would just give them uh, to, to handle while they were at work, not to take home for fun, uh, just you know, stacks of, of cash. And, and they would feel it and they would handle it and they would look at it and they would study it and they would know what the real money looks like so that when the counterfeit would come in, they would just somehow having been so familiar with that which is true and which is real, something, even if it was very subtle, would catch the eye and catch the attention so that you would study it more. And a lot of the counterfeit was able to be caught that way. And John is saying, this is the way that we get discernment. It's not by going out and studying every cult that is out there and all their beliefs, not that there's no benefit, I just, not much benefit from that but it's by turning our attention to God as he has revealed himself from beginning to end in the scripture and ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, when we know God and we know what he has done and what he is doing and what he has promises to do, when somebody else comes and offers this idea that's gonna promise you happiness and, and, and prosperity, but with a message or a messenger that is different from the one that God has sent, we recognize it if we are familiar with the word. And so John is saying to us, We need wisdom, and we need discernment, and he's writing to us because he wants to turn our attention to that which is true, and he's, throughout this letter, is pointing us to God who has revealed himself personally and fully, completely, perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. And As we study him and we see him, as we see God's plan of redemption unfolding, we are less subject to being taken captive by new and untrue though sometimes sincere-sounding ideas. Finally, if we turn to the end of John's letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, we see the last of John's reasons for writing this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John's writing that we may know. John's writing that we may have assurance of the relationship that we have with God, of our status in Christ. As many people know, insecurity is an incredibly hollow feeling. Some people wrestle with it consistently certainly has popped into my life at different times, but perhaps no more keenly than on August 8th, 1988. I'd been visiting my parents in Delaware, and it had dawned on me that I needed to make a change in my life. So I realized and decided that I was going to go back to Tennessee and propose to Carolyn. We'd been dating for a couple of years, so I was making no plans of getting married. In fact, my plan was to not be married and apparently that was bothering her, but we were still in the relationship. But I, I told her I was coming, uh, gonna come in and wanna see her and um, wanted to ask her something. So I got up early in the morning on August the 8th, 1988. Memorable because of all the eights and, and as shockingly as this, it was at 808-8888 that had crossed that bridge that is overlooking uh, the Harpers Ferry in West Virginia. And right as I cross that bridge at 808-8888, my car dies outside Charlestown, West Virginia. I thought, I'll call my friends in Charlestown, West Virginia. The problem is I don't know anybody in Charlestown. I don't know anybody near Charlestown, West Virginia. I never even knew anybody who'd ever been to Charlestown, West Virginia at that point in time. So I'm sitting there on the side of the road, with my car dead, and it was in a rural area I'm already feeling insecure because I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna ask a question, am I gonna get married? Am I gonna get married sometime soon? If I ask, it's gonna say yes. What's gonna happen? And now the car's dead. And so a guy comes by, he happens to be a believer. He's a mechanic. He takes me to this place and he fixes the car. And the after the day, he refuses to take any money from me. And here's what he says, this ought to get you back. Ought to, ought to, I'm 10 hours away. So now I'm driving, am I gonna get married? I mean, you know, and am I gonna even get there to ask the question in the first place? For 10 hours, I am feeling double anxiety and insecure because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm gonna get there, I don't know what's gonna happen. So I I, I know that feeling and it was very intense on that day. And as you might have imagined, the car made it. I went, I asked Carolyn if she would marry me, she said yes. She came over the next morning and said she'd changed her mind because I'd been such, you know, not committed to a relationship before that, and that's a whole different story. I won't go into that part, but you know, for my story today, I know the feeling of that that emptiness that comes with insecurity. But the fact is, many people live their lives in the same way that I drove from Charlestown, West Virginia to Knoxville, Tennessee, because they just don't know what's going to happen. None of us know what's going to happen. And they just don't know the status of the relationship, and they don't know how they're going to get through, and they don't know where they stand in relationship to God. Now, I need to be clear about this. It is not our assurance that saves us. It is the character and the grace of God. And so there are many people who live this life with no sense of assurance in their relationship with God who are going to be saved. God loves them. And if it's you, loves you far more than what you know or that you're willing to accept. We live our lives with unnecessary anxiety because whenever difficulty comes our way, we wonder, is God mad at me? Is God punishing me? Is God rejecting me? Is God forsaking me? We're just not sure of our relationship and what God thinks of us. And John here saying, because he knows this is a common thing, I'm writing these things so that you may know, not that you may think that the odds are good, that you may know that you who are in Jesus Christ, you who have trusted in him, you have eternal life. He's writing to give us assurance to mitigate, to to eat away at the the, um, insecurity that we carry in our lives. And he goes on and he says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's simple. But he's writing this to us, saying, I want you to have this assurance, and then the peace that comes with the assurance. And that comes when we know what God has said, when we are those who read what God has written for us. And so we see four reasons that John has written, four promises or blessings that go with that. We see in this passage that we may have fellowship with God, We may become and live holy lives saying no and dying to sin with wisdom and discernment when all sources of false doctrines are throwing out in the wind and with an assurance that doesn't come from our experience, but from God himself. These are the blessings, among the blessings, that come to those who read and who know God's word, not merely by second hand, but because you feed on it. And so I issue the challenge. Let's be a people of the word. I'm going to finish with this. It's a, a, a quote from a guy named Craig Bartholomew, actually two writers, Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, in a book they wrote called The Drama of Scripture. The word of the Bible is... Uh, the world in the, of the Bible is our world, and its story of redemption is also our story. Story is waiting for an ending, in part, because we ourselves have a role to play before all is concluded. We must, therefore, pay attention to the continuing biblical story of redemption. You see, the story that God has revealed as we read it, as we study it, as we learn it, is not just of one of history but it is a story that is ongoing. And even where we are in history, we are a part. We are the beneficiaries of those who have come before us in the story, and we are parts for those who will follow us or who live among us. But the only way that we know our own story is to know how we fit into God's story. And the only way that we know where we fit into God's story is if we know what God has been doing from beginning until he ends it. And the only way we get that is to be people of a word. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for your servant John and thankful for these blessings that you promise for those who are students. And I pray that we as a church, not just the church collectively, but we as a church and its individuals, we would be a people who hunger for the word, not discouraged by the difficulties, but recognize the blessings that belong to those who are yours and the blessing that your word is to us. Lord, be at work in us, among us, and through us. To the glory of your name and the good of all who we encounter. And to our joy, we pray in Christ. Amen.